The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship. Scripture teaches us that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all of our sins on the cross. Every sin, past, present, and future, was paid for on the cross through His substitutionary death. Nevertheless, when we sin as believers... We still break our fellowship with the Lord, and the Scripture says we grieve the Holy Spirit. And when we grieve the Holy Spirit, then we have to, then we lose fellowship with the Holy Spirit, and we break our ongoing sanctification or growth in the spiritual life. To recover that, we have to confess our sins. Simple. We admit our sins in the privacy of our priesthood to God the Father in silent prayer. And then we recover the filling of the Holy Spirit, and we are restored for continued spiritual growth. So we always take a few moments uh, before we begin our study of the Word just to pray, silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word because it is a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet. And as the psalmist said, it is in thy light that we see light. It is in thy truth that we see truth. And only on the basis of your word can we have the uh, correct information needed in order to properly understand and evaluate the circumstances around us and in order to uh, properly interpret history, to see our own lives with objectivity and to know how to discern truth from falsehood. And Father, we pray as we look into your word today that you would help us to understand the things that we are studying, that they might give us a greater discernment and appreciation for what is going on around us and in our lives today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are studying in 1 John, specifically in 1 John 2.18. First John 2.18, where we begin the last time. The verse reads, it will be up on the screen in a minute. 
Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know that it is the last hour. Now, as I began this two weeks ago, before we had our little interruption last week because I got stranded in Houston, uh, we looked at the first and last phrase. We saw that this verse is constructed according to what is called a chiasm in the uh, in literature. And in a chiastic structure, you have something that looks like this. You'll have one statement, then the next statement, and you can have three, four, five, or six statements. And then there is, and they move in in one direction, and then there's a series of statements that mirror or reflect the first series, but in reverse order. So you have A, statement A, statement B, then B prime, and then A prime. The first and last statement of this verse have to do with the last hour, and the two middle verses have to do with the Antichrist or Antichrists. Now, I'm going to take these out of order simply because of the way I had planned and structured a number of things. Last week I would have covered the doctrine of the Antichrist as the individual who will be the great uh, opposer and substitute for Christ at the, uh, during the tribulation period, which is yet future. And this week I was to cover the doctrine of Antichrists. Uh, unfortunately, because of the interruption last week, I missed that. I will cover the doctrine of the Antichrist next time when I return from Ukraine. But because of what we're going to do while I, or you are going to do while I'm gone, I feel that it is necessary to go ahead and take this out of order and cover the doctrine of Antichrist this time. What John is saying here is that just if you've heard that Antichrist, and that's in the singular, Antichrist is coming, and it's a, it's a present tense, but it's what's called a prophetic present, in that uh, the Antichrist is coming in the future. He doesn't say Antichrist will come, which is a future tense, but expresses it in a present tense because its future reality is so certain that uh, it is expressed as a present tense. But he goes on to say, even now, that is, in the last hour during the church age, many antichrists have arisen. Now, this term, antichrist, is derived, is derived from a Greek word with the preposition anti, which in English, anti has the idea of opposition or against. But in the Greek, the anti means substitution or instead of. This is a substitute Christ, a religious leader, and it indicates that this, this figure, this is the only place in the scripture where Antichrist refer, as a title refers to that end time ruler during the tribulation. There are many other titles which we will look at when I come back and we cover the doctrine of the Antichrist, but for right now we must understand that there are many different uh, figures in history that may be termed an Antichrist. And that is because that just as we studied the last time under the doctrine of imminency, that Jesus Christ coming, his return for the church is imminent. That means it can happen at any moment. There is no specific time set. Uh, there's no prophecy that must be fulfilled between now and the time that Jesus Christ returns. It could be this morning. It could be tonight. It could have been 
a thousand years ago. There is no prophecy in the Scripture that must be fulfilled before Jesus Christ returns. And since we do not know when he will return, the Scriptures do not reveal when he will return, Satan does not know when he will return. Therefore, in every generation, in every decade, Satan has to have his man on the scene and his system ready to go in case the uh, rapture of the church, which is the exit resurrection of the church, when every believer in the church age, alive and dead, will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, in the clouds, that... uh, Because Satan does not know when that will be. He always has to be ready. So throughout the church age, you have certain trends, trends of false religions, trends of religious leaders that arise and create new religious systems that Satan can use for his benefit in order to uh, maybe be used to bring in the final end-time ecumenical religion during the... Tribulation. What I wanted to do was to look at one particular antichrist that appeared in history and his religious system. And so this morning we are going to cover the doctrine of Islam, the myth of peace. What is happening today is light of the terrorist attacks on September 11th, is that we are being bombarded and brainwashed by an illiterate media and an ignorant media trying to convince us that Islam is really a peaceful religion. Your children are being indoctrinated in this falsehood in the public schools. They are being forced to watch uh, videotapes that indicate that the Muslims are really people of peace. Uh, you have probably had to deal with this in uh, some form of political correctness uh, at where, at where you work. I have a friend of mine who is a uh, colonel in Houston in a reserve unit, and the chaplain there put together a little booklet that came out of the chaplain's office in the Army. And uh, they came and uh, indoctrinated all the military people in the fact that Islam is a religion of peace. And it's being promoted from the highest levels of bureaucracy in this nation. And um, unfortunately, if you read the Quran, if you read the Hadith, which is the uh, Islamic commentary on the Quran, much as the Talmud and the Mishnah are are the Jewish commentaries on the Old Testament and the Mosaic Law, if you read that literature, you will discover that uh, Islam is just the opposite. It is, and it is not a religion of peace, and it never has been a religion of peace. And uh, we have to look at the evidence and to understand where it came from, what its origins were, and what the teachings are in Islam. So we are going to look at that as one expression of a religious system that is an example of antichrists an example of Antichrist in the church age. Now, Islam was founded by a prophet. He did not claim to be God. He did not claim deity for himself. He claimed simply to be a prophet, but he claimed to be the greatest of all prophets, and his name was Muhammad. Muhammad was born in 570 A.D. in Mecca, in what is now uh, Saudi Arabia, what was then just Arabia on the Arabian Peninsula. 
and he was born as Ubu al-Qasim. His parents died when he was a child, and he was raised by an uncle who was a merchant and took him on various caravan trips throughout the Middle East. He went as far as Egypt, up through Israel, or Palestine as it was at that time, up into Syria, all over Arabia, and he had contacts with many different people. He had contacts with Jews, and he had contacts with, with Christians, and he was somewhat discouraged by the fact that on the Arabian Peninsula, they were uh, the the Arabs were nothing more than a uh, nomadic tribes who practiced polytheism. They had 360 gods, one for each day of the year, and they worshipped. And the deities that they worshipped included angels, demons, and the highest and most powerful of all the gods in the Arabian pantheon was a god by the name of Allah. And Allah was a moon god. He was also, as the moon god, he was the god of war. Now, if you remember your your Greek and Roman mythology, Mars and Ares, same person, just different names, depending on whether you're dealing with the Latin or the Greek, were the, were the god, was the god of war. And if you were to look at the, let's take the uh, Ares, the the uh, Greek pantheon, and Zeus was the head of the Greek pantheon, and let's say you looked at all of the gods that the Greeks had, and you said all of a sudden, well, we're just going to focus on on Ares, the god of war. We're going to get rid of all the other gods. We're going to get rid of Zeus and, and uh, Hera, and we're going to get rid of all the other gods, and we're just going to worship this one god. Have I lost my sound? No? Just the speaker. Okay, speaker's back on. Okay, Jim's up there playing with something. So, uh, you have, if you were to look at all the gods and goddesses in the Greek pantheon and you were to get rid of all but one, that would not make you, uh, make that god equivalent to the god of the Bible. It's still Ares, he's still a god of war, and he's still a violent and bloody god. And that's exactly what happened. What Muhammad did was he just said, we're going to get rid of all this polytheism, we're going to get rid of the other 359 gods, and we're going to have, we're going to have one left, and that will be uh, Allah. And uh, Allah was the moon god represented by a crescent moon, which is why the Islamic nations have on their flag a moon, a crescent moon, signifying the worship of Allah and his roots as the moon god. When Muhammad was a young man, he did what some young men do in order to get ahead in life. I'm not recommending this, but that's what he did. He married his boss. He was a camel driver, and she had a trucking company, you might say. And uh, so he married the boss in order to get ahead in life. And because she was fairly wealthy, it left him with a lot of time on his hands, and being a somewhat uh, introspective ascetic, uh, and my uh, guess is from reading about him, somewhat self-righteous, legalistic bent in his sin nature, he liked to go up and, and uh, meditate on, quote, spiritual things up in the mountains. Well, as when he was 40 years of age, he started having these strange convulsions, and he started... Uh, uh, foaming at the mouth, and he started going into trances, and he was convinced that he was demon-possessed, that he had a jinn that's uh, spelled D-J-I-N, and this is the Arabic from which we get our English word genie. 
you know, the genie in the bottle that, that Aladdin found was a jinn, that is, an evil spirit. And he was convinced that he was possessed by a jinn, by an evil spirit. But his wife said, no, 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 you're not possessed by an evil spirit. That's just the angel Gabriel, and, uh, the, and Gabriel is wanting to uh, communicate with you. So he goes up into a cave in the mountains, and the angel Gabriel allegedly appeared to this illiterate camel herder outside of Mecca, and they had a little fight, and Gabriel strangled him and choked him into submission, demanding that he, quote, proclaim in the name of the Lord the Creator who created man from a clot of blood. So he was to proclaim this new information, new revelation that came allegedly from God. And the fact that Gabriel choked him into submission is key for understanding Islam because the word Islam does not mean peace. See, some people think it's a cognate of peace because in Hebrew you have the word shalom and in Arabic you have the word salam, which means peace. But Islam means submission. And the role of Islam... And their mission is to uh, cause everybody on the planet to come into submission to Allah. And it doesn't matter whether it's done out of free will or, or if they are forced into submission by violence. And that becomes clear from reading the Quran. So just as uh, Muhammad was forced into submission through violence, that is the way that Islam has often spread in history. Well, he had various visions with the uh, angel Gabriel, and over a 22-year period, he was given uh, 78,000 words of the Quran's 114 chapters. And he never wrote anything down because he was as illiterate as his followers. In fact, one of the most uh, popular and probable uh, theories, and it's just that nobody knows for sure as to who actually wrote the Quran, is that it was written by a Jewish rabbi. Now you may think that's somewhat ironic, but but see, all these illiterate Arabs didn't know how to write anything down, so they wanted to find somebody who had some sort of religious background who could uh, write all this down. So they grabbed a rabbi to do it, and there have been some uh, <coughs> various interesting studies. I heard one. One person who was a, had gone through a Jewish seminary and had studied Kabbalah, studied uh, the uh, Mishnah and Talmud, and he said anybody familiar with the Mishnah and Talmud, which are the Jewish commentaries on the Old Testament, can easily recognize uh, Mishnaic and Talmudic and Midrashic statements in the Quran. And there are a number of other uh, interesting lines of evidence that I don't want to go into this morning, but that's one suggestion. There are other groups that claim that somebody in their group was one who was hired to uh, to uh, write down the Koran, but it was not Muhammad, and it wasn't any of his original followers. In fact, it was a couple of generations before they wrote it down. And some archaeologists that have gone gone into uh, uh, Saudi Arabia and Yemen have discovered uh, just like a treasure trove of verses that over the centuries have been removed from the Quran. There's a lot of similarities between the, the Quran and, its, uh, and Islam and its beginnings as, and, uh, and the beginnings of the Mormon church. It's fascinating parallels. Uh, again, I don't have time to go into that. 
But uh, what happened with Muhammad was he began to try to force his new religion on people. He went to the Jews and they rejected him. He went to the Christians and they rejected him. So now he's mad at both the Jews and the Christians. So he's going to have a religious system that is uh, antagonistic to both of those groups. And he went to the uh, Arabs and tried to force it on them and they rejected it. So he had to flee Mecca for his life. That's what's called the Hegira. And which really marked the beginning of the Muslim area. And when he fled, he went out into the desert and gathered various uh, Bedouin riffraff and desert pirates around him. And uh, he needed to raise funds in order to support this new army. So he did so by raiding various caravans. And he came up with the idea that this ought to be justified with some kind of a religious uh, argumentation. So he developed the doctrine of jihad, which means struggle or uh, exertion. And jihad, therefore, authorized uh, military ventures known as extortion and robbery in God's name. In 628 A.D., he returned to Mecca with a force of 10,000 men and gained control over the city in a bloodless coup, and the result was that all of Arabia was his. Now, Islam looks at Muhammad as a prophet, the greatest of all the prophets, but Islam does not recognize Jesus as a son of God. He recognizes Jesus only as a prophet. And what often happens, if you watch what's taking place today, uh, you'll find some churches who will invite an Islamic leader in, and they will say, well, you know, we're ju- we believe in God as you do. Allah is the same God of Abraham. We just uh, we reject the descent descendants through, Ish, uh, through Isaac, and we focus on uh, that it was through Ishmael that the promised blessing goes. The trouble with that is that is just a deception. And unfortunately, many people are being deceived by this uh, today. For example, after September 11th, one of the uh, new fashionable, fashionable mega churches in the country, Willow Creek Community Church in Chicago, which is considered, I think it's just about the largest church in America, started by Bill Hybels back in the late 70s and is held up as a model for church growth, how to do it, how to build a big church. But the only trouble is they don't teach any doctrine. They don't teach any truth there. Matter of fact, I read a, a uh, doctoral dissertation that was published a few years ago that was written by uh, a sociology Ph.D. candidate at Northwestern University in Illinois, and he didn't have any kind of theological axe to grind. But if you read his dissertation, his analysis of what was going on at Willow Creek with any amount of discernment, then you will uncover some interesting things. Like, for example, of the 300 pastors they have on staff, this sum total of systematic theologies owned by the pastoral staff comes to zero. The number of years that the uh, sum total of years that the pastoral staff has spent in Bible college and or seminary comes to zero. They don't want anybody to come in with any preconceived notions that might somehow stifle their creativity. So uh, there's no theologies, no... uh, I mean, they don't care what the Bible says, basically, and I don't care how uh, close Bill Hybels might get to the gospel now and then. What happened there uh, in this interview tells the whole story. 
he decided that they, that people were getting too antagonistic to, to Muslims. So they needed to find out just what Muslims actually believe. So he invited a Muslim leader in Chicago over to have a little interview. And they set up the stage up front in a nice living room setting and invited Faisal Hamouda, who is an American citizen originally from Egypt and is an imam in the Islamic Center in Naperville, Chicago, to come and have a dialogue with him on stage. 17,000 attended. Obviously, they have a larger auditorium than we do. And uh, according to Fisal Hamouda, in the course of that conversation, he said that Muslims consider Jesus and other biblical figures to be Islamic prophets, though not as important as Muhammad. Now, the way that came across is indicated by the response of uh, several people in the, uh, in the audience. He said, quote, We call you the people of the book. We have all the prophets from the Bible. And that's his statement. But uh, folks in the congregation heard something different. One church member, revealing her lack of uh, discernment and ability to think perceptively, said, I didn't know they believed in Jesus. I thought it was interesting how much we have in common. See, that is exactly what is happening around the world. People are being force-fed this um, uh, false teaching that Islam is really a religion of peace. But here's the truth. Christians are told by Muslims that faith in Christ as God incarnate is blasphemy. According to Islam, all Jews are, by virtue of their birth, damned by God. Islam rejects the idea of a virgin birth of Jesus as the Son of God. They reject the miracles he performed. They reject his death on the cross. For them, Jesus didn't die on the cross. He was taken into heaven before the cross, and somebody else was crucified. Now, those of you who have been with me on our study of 1 John know that that sounds vaguely familiar to the Gnostic doctrine doctrine that Jesus only appeared in the flesh but wasn't actually in the flesh. And as we'll see in our continued study of 1 John 2, that's part of the teachings of, uh, that John was writing against in 1 John. So the Bible, in their view, is corrupted and has been corrupted, especially by Israel. They hate all Jews. There is this deep core Hatred of the anti-Semitism in, among all Muslims that is palpable. It's incredible. Years ago, I read some books written by uh, some Islamic prophets, I guess, or, or religious leaders, uh, and they were some of the vilest anti-Semitic stuff that I have ever read. They were, they were worse than anything I've read that came out of Nazi Germany. As a matter of fact, Hitler's Mein Kampf is today the number one best-selling book in Arabic countries because they hate the Jews so much. The main religious book for the Jews is the Quran, but it is augmented by the Hadith, which is considered to be of equal value and equal authority. Now, the five pillars of Islam are these. First of all, they recite the Shahada. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger. And they have to recite that uh, five times a day whenever they pray towards Mecca. 
Second, they pray five times a day towards Mecca, morning, noon, late afternoon, sunset, and before uh, bedtime. They must pray while kneeling with their forehead pressed firmly against the ground. In fact, when you see older Muslims, sometimes they'll have a little flat spot right in the middle of their forehead from all the years pressing their head against the, uh, against the ground. It's sort of a self-hypnotic learning system as you repeat over and over to yourself, there is no God but Allah, Muhammad is his messenger. Third, they believe in almsgiving. Yeah, they're real generous. They have a charity. That's sort of what uh, 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 Ramadan is all about, is they're su- supposed to give the food they don't eat to, to charity. They are also required to uh, voluntarily give to aid the poor and to purify oneself of materialism. So they're required to donate one-fortieth of their income and possessions. In the Old Testament, they were to give one-tenth. One-fortieth is just a little microscopic dot. So, uh, And then the fourth pillar is fasting during the month of Ramadan. And fasting in the Bible is where you are so concerned about, about your relationship with God or something you're praying about that that prayer takes priority even over eating. It's not the fact of fasting that somehow impresses God, but it is that you are so intense and so passionate about what you are beseeching God about that, that it overshadows any, any desire to eat during that time. Fasting in and of itself has no value. But they, and, and when you fast in the Scriptures, it might be it's a complete fast. It's not one of these things where we're going to have a fast and just not a not drink fruit juice or just uh, have a fast, uh, a vegetable fast or a meat fast. I mean, some people do that today. Um, and, and, and among the Muslims, uh, during Ramadan, you just don't eat between sunup and sundown. But after sundown, you can, you can eat. So it's sort of a partial fast to impress Allah. Then the fifth pillar is the Hajj, which is your pilgrimage to Mecca. And of course, it's if you want to go to heaven, then you either die, you know, hopefully you will die on your hajj, or you will die in the midst of jihad. And those are the only sure ways that you can get to heaven. Other than that, you don't know if you'll ever get into heaven or into paradise. These are the five pillars of Islam, and many believe that the sixth pillar is jihad. Now, what are some of the beliefs of of uh, Muslims. Well, first of all, as I've stated already, Islam itself does not mean peace but submission, and a Muslim is one who submits. And the goal of Islam is to get all mankind to submit, even if by force, to Allah. There is no such thing as salvation in Islam as there is in Christianity. In Christianity, there is a belief that all men are sinners. There's no comparable doctrine of total depravity in Islam. There is no comparable doctrine of salvation. And there is no uh, certainty and no idea of how one ever gets to heaven. The only way, you, as I stated earlier, the only way you can know if you get to heaven is if you die on a hajj or if you die in, uh, in uh, uh, jihad. Uh, Islam is completely intolerant of all other religious beliefs. If you will notice, in, in uh, uh, countries that are, quote, Christian, incidentally, there's no such thing as a Christian country or a Christian nation because only people can believe, Christ, uh, nations cannot. 
but in the Western world where there has been a big impact of Christianity, we, we, there is freedom of uh, religion where you can, you people have the freedom to believe whatever they want to, but not in any Islamic countries. In Islamic countries, you can't even have a Bible with you, and if you work for a Western country, uh, Western company in Saudi Arabia, then you're allowed to go in, and, and I've talked to guys who've gone over there, they've had to sneak Bibles in, um, different things like that. You're not allowed to even have a Bible. You can't give it away. If any Muslim converts to Christianity, then he, he is, uh, his father is required to kill him. If the father will not kill him, then the village is required to kill both the father and the son. Uh, Islam is inherently intolerant of all other religious beliefs. It's, in, it's against progress, and it represses women. In fact, in the uh, second surah, which deals with women, uh, men are told that if you want to have a good wife, you have to beat her. According to Islam, there are only two people on the planet. There are those who are a member of the House of Peace, the Dar es Salaam, and those who are a member of the House of War, the Dar al-Harb. And... The people who are members of the House of Peace make war and are to destroy those who are in the House of War. And then finally, when they, one of the sayings that they say frequently, that Allah is great, that's how it's usually translated. In the Arabic, it is Allahu Akbar. And that does not mean literally God is great. It means God or Allah is greater. Greater than what? We are reminded that it is Satan, Lucifer, who has said that he is greater than God. We are also reminded that in Deuteronomy 32 and 1 Corinthians 10, we are told that behind all idols and false gods there are demons. So if you put two and two together, then it comes up with the conclusion that Allah is a creation of or a manifestation of Lucifer. And especially when you couple that with the extreme anti-Semitism of Islam, they hate Jews. That's, that's the whole issue in, uh, going on right now in Israel, is the Palestinian agenda is not to have a separate Palestinian state. They want to have a Palestinian state where there is no Jewish state whatsoever. Uh, Islam is committed to the eradication of every Jew, uh, if they thought about the consistency of it, they, they would probably have a problem, but they're not necessarily consistent. According to is, Islamic uh, prophecy and eschatology, when Jesus comes back, he will come back as a Muslim. And he and Muhammad will then gather all the Muslims to themselves, and they will go out and they will kill every Christian and every Jew so much so that the rocks and the trees, according to the Hadith, will cry out, there is a Jew behind me, come and kill it. So the, Jesus, the God that they worship, Allah, is not the God of the Bible, and the Jesus that they talk about is not the Jesus of the Bible. Their Jesus is an Islamic Jesus and is not the Jesus that we're talking about. He is a Jesus that is a uh, destructive warrior who... Uh, hates all Jews. Now, as I said earlier, Islam was built on the foundation of Arabian paganism. It's built on the foundation of Arabian paganism, and apparently Muhammad had a trend in his sin nature towards asceticism and legalism and was embarrassed by the Arabs and their 
multiplicity of gods, especially when he went around and he had contact with Jews and Christians. He was more impressed with their piety and with their morality, and so he tried to force this on the Arabs. And he did this by getting rid of all of their gods except for Allah. And we know from Deuteronomy that the gods, that the the personages behind the gods of the idols, are demons. And if you look at the attributes of Allah in the Quran, they are not the attributes of God in the Bible. For example, the word love is only used two times in the Quran. And in the Bible, the core commandment in the Old Testament is that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. In the New Testament, Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. And in First John, we read that God is love. There are no comparable statements to those in the Quran. That is because, and as I have stated again and again, in a theological system that is a Unitarian monotheism, and by that I mean in contrast to Christianity, which is a Trinitarian monotheism. See, we believe in one God who exists, one in essence, but three in person. And so for all eternity you have God the Father who is love, God the Son who is love, and God the Holy Spirit who is love. And therefore, throughout all eternity, there is a perfect object to God the Father's perfect love, and that is God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. The same is true of God the Son. There is an eternal object for God the Son's perfect love for all eternity, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. But in a Unitarian monotheism, where there's only one personality, there is no one for Allah to love five billion years ago. So that means that either he is not inherently a God of love, or he is dependent upon the existence of a creature in order to be a God of love. If he is a God of love, then he's dependent upon creatures to be who he is, and that means he's not a God. Because a God, by definition, can't be dependent on his creatures to be who and what he is. So therefore, he is inherently, logically, cannot be a God of love. And when the ultimate God in any religious system is not a God of love, then he can't require that of people. And that is why the religious system of Islam is fundamentally based on, on violence and vengeance as opposed to love and love and peace is because the God who is atop the entire structure is not a God of love and a God of peace. Now, Islam was originally planted by the sword. Islam was originally planted by the sword and spread by the sword during the time of Muhammad. In fact, he killed and murdered tens of thousands of Arabs and Syrians in order to spread Islam during the uh, 8th and 9th century. Uh, it, Muhammad tortured his captives with fire. He was quite a sadist. He would kill them. He would take their wives as his bondmaids and forced others to marry his companions. Anyone who criticized him was instantly murdered. And following his death, his relatives, and that's why they call the caliph, they were the, the wars of the caliphs trying to decide who his successor was, all the caliphs were to be blood relatives of Muhammad. So his followers fought a bloody war of succession, and his own relatives and closest friends sacrificed and slaughtered one another. 
So it is not a religion of peace. Now let's look at the differences between Jesus and Muhammad. First of all, Jesus' birth as the Messiah was prophesied in Scripture. Muhammad's birth was not. For example, in the Scriptures, we are told that Jesus, the Messiah, was to come as a descendant of Abraham, according to Genesis 12.3 and Genesis 18.18. He would be a descendant of not only Abraham, but Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He would be born into the tribe of Judah and the house of David, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. He was to be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7:14, and to be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5:2. Unfortunately, there is no scripture to appeal to about the birth of Muhammad. So he prophesied it in his own writings. In Surah 61:17, and Surah is just a chapter. Uh, Jesus, son of Mary, said, Children of Israel, I am indeed the messenger of Allah to you, confirming the Torah that is before me, giving good tidings of a messenger who shall come after me, whose name shall be Ahmed. That's another form of Muhammad. So um, Muhammad had to include something that would prophesy his own birth. Secondly, Jesus was foretold to be the Son of God, and he claimed to be the Son of God, and the apostles also proclaim him as the Son of God. However, Muhammad and Islam reject this. For example, in Surah 4.18, we read the Messiah, Jesus, Son of Mary. See, they'll recognize Jesus as Messiah, but not the Son of God. The Messiah, Jesus, Son of Mary, was only the messenger of God, and his word that he committed to Mary and a spirit from him. The Messiah, in Surah 5.19, the Messiah, son of Mary, was only a messenger. Messengers before him passed away. His mother was a just woman. I think there's an implication there of rejection of the virgin birth. They both ate food. Behold how we, how we make clear, uh, clear uh, songs to them. Then behold how perverted they are. Uh, Surah 6.20, the creator of the heavens and the earth. How can he have a son, seeing that he has no consort, and he created all things, and he has knowledge of everything? So he can, God cannot have a son. Uh, Surah 9.21, the Jews say Ezra, that's, another, that's the Arabic form of Jesus. Ezra is the son of God. And the Christians say the Messiah is the son of God. That is the, uh, no, excuse me, Ezra is uh, another name for the Messiah. Uh, Jews say Ezra is the son of God. The Christians say the Messiah is the son of God. That is the utterance of their mouths, confirming with the unbelievers before them, rejecting the idea that anyone can be a son of God. Muhammad thought that was a pagan idea. Uh, Surah 10.20, They, the Christians, say God has taken to him a son. Glory be to him. He, he is all-sufficient, he says, referring to Allah. To him belongs all that is in the heavens and in the earth. You have no authority for this, as you Christians have no authority for this. What so you say concerning God that you know not? Say, those who forge against God falsehood shall not proffer some enjoyment in this world, then unto us they shall return. Then we shall let them taste the terrible chastisement, that is, the violent end that Muslims are to give Christians who believe that God had a son. Surah 10.22. Surah 17.23 says, Praise belongs to God who has not taken to him a son. Surah 23.25 says, God has not taken to himself any son. Surah 307.27 says, Is it not of their own calumny that they say God has begotten? They are truly liars. 
Surah 33:28. It was Muhammad's self-proclaimed mission to warn those who say that God has taken to himself a son. So he is warning everyone. He thought it was blasphemy to say that God has a son. So all Christians, by definition, are blasphemers. And in the Quran, they are to kill all blasphemers. That is why one of the uh, one of the sayings in the Hadith is to kill the Jews on Saturday, their people of the Sabbath, and to kill the Christians on Sunday. Uh, furthermore, in furthermore, Muhammad did not authenticate his claims with any works or miracles. He claimed that that the surahs in the Quran, that is. The book itself was the only sign needed to authenticate himself as a prophet. He performed no miracles. In Surah 29.32 we read, They say, Why have signs not been sent down upon him from his Lord? And this is what you're to answer as a Muslim. The signs are only with God, and I am only a plain warner. What, is it not sufficient for them that we have sent down upon thee the book that is recited to them? That is the Quran. Surely, in that, it, in that is a mercy and a reminder to a people who believe. Surah 29.32. One of the reasons these texts read so funny is because in Islam, you can only know the truth from the Arabic. You can't, the, the truth cannot really be perceived in any translation. But you see, the God of Christianity is greater than all languages. So that you can communicate the eternal truth of Scripture in any language it's translated into. It may not be as precise as the original Hebrew or Greek, but we firmly believe that anyone can understand the absolute truth and meaning of the Bible in a translation. But that is not true uh, about Islam. Islam says you really can't know it at all unless you read it in the original Arabic. And then we read, It is he who has sent his messenger, Muhammad, with the guidance and the religion of truth, that he may uplift it above every religion. God suffices as a, as a witness. So the, the giving of the Quran is the only sign that uh, Muslims have. Jesus and the Old Testament prophets emphasize love. Over and over again in the Bible, there's an emphasis on love. Love for God, love for mankind, God's love for mankind. But this is not true in, in the Quran. In fact, the Quran emphasizes vengeance and vindictiveness and violence as opposed to love and forgiveness. Jesus said we are to forgive those who spitefully use us and not judge others. We are to judge not that we be not judged. But this is not true of the, of the Muslims. In Surah 2.35 we read, O believers, prescribed for you is retaliation, touching the slain. Freeman for freeman, slave for slave, female for female. In retaliation there is life for you. Men possessed of minds, haply you will be God-fearing. Surah 2.37, Whoso commits aggression against you, do you commit aggression against him like as he has committed against you? Uh, Surah 2.38, prescribed for you is fighting, though it be hateful to you. Uh, take not to yourselves in Surah 550, take not to yourselves friends of them, uh, Jews and Christians, until they immigrate in the way of God. Then if they turn their backs, take them and slay them wherever you find them. That's real peaceful. If you convert to Islam and then decide to go back to Christianity, the responsibility of a Muslim is to kill you. And Surah 4247, the recompense of evil is evil the like of it. It's not vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, but you're to repay evil for evil.
Uh, Islam is not a peaceful religion. Dave Hunt writes in his book, A Cup of Trembling, Jerusalem in Bible Prophecy, Islam is fighting a holy war for control of the world. That war was begun by Muhammad himself in the 7th century and is still carried on today by his faithful followers through terrorism. The terrorists are not radicals or extremists as the media continually labels them. Instead, they are Islamic fundamentalists. Now, what's a fundamentalist? A fundamentalist is someone who believes in the fundamentals of whatever his system is. If you are a driver, I hope that you are a fundamentalist driver that you drive on the right-hand side of the road, that you only pass in areas where you can pass, that you stop at stop signs and stop at red lights and go at green lights. That's a fundamentalist driver. There's nothing extremist about this. And yet what has happened is that our modern uh, liberal media is using the term fundamentalist as an insulting, negative uh, term synonymous with extremism. And that is a falsehood. Christian fundamentalist, the term came into use because of a uh, series of books published in the early 20th century called The Five Fundamentals of the Faith. We believe the Word of God is the inspired Word of God. The Bible is the inspired Word of God. The the virgin birth, miracles, Christ performed miracles, the substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross, and that Jesus Christ would return at the second coming. That's the fundamentalist. And the term fundamentalist for Christianity came into use to describe people who believe in the five fundamentals of the faith. Not extremists, not crusaders, not anybody like that, but people who just believed in the, in the literal inspiration of Scripture and what it taught. And that's what a, uh, an Islamic fundamentalist is. They, they may see they're extremists only to a modern Western society that has bought into an ecumenical view of religion that ultimately there's no reality expressed by any religion and a multicultural view that tries to reduce everything to saying the same thing, all religions to saying the same thing, that there's all, they're all just different expressions of one way to God. Nevertheless, Islam and Christianity and Buddhism are all radically different approaches to God, and what is true of one cannot be true about the other because they assert mutually exclusive things. Well, Dave goes on to say, instead, these are Islamic fundamentalists who are true to their religion and the teachings of the Quran and who follow fully in the footsteps of their great prophet Muhammad. As one former Muslim and Islamic scholar has said, and then he quotes uh, uh, El Shafi from his book Behind the Veil. El Shafi is a pseudonym because he is converted from. Islam, and he is protecting his identity so they don't come after him, which they do. He writes, We must never imagine that such Muslims are being unnecessarily wicked. They are simply being faithful to their religion. The fact is never hidden as to the attitude of a good Muslim, as to the attitude a good Muslim should have towards Christians and Jews. In fact, much of the incitement to violence and war in the whole of the Quran is directed against the Jews and Christians who rejected what they felt to be the strange God, Muhammad, uh, the the strange God Muhammad was trying to preach. And then al-Shafi writes again in his book, Behind the Veil, Unmasking Islam, Muhammad and his successors initiated offensive wars against peaceful countries in order to impose Islam by force, as well as to seize the, the abundance of these lands. Their objective was to capture women and children and to put an end to the poverty and hunger from which Arab Muslims suffered. 
So Islam was forcibly imposed upon Syria, Jordan, Palestine, Egypt, Libya, Iraq, Iran, all of North Africa, some parts of India and China, and later Spain. In fact, Western Europe fought the Muslims from uh, the 8th century up to the 15th century, and it was only when Columbus and others came to the Americas and took back all of the gold from Mexico and South America and North America that uh, Western Europe had the financial resources to finally defeat the Muslims. I mean, the, the, the Spanish had defeated him. I mean, Charles Martel in the 8th century had defeated and stopped their advance at the Battle of Tours in France. The uh, uh, Ferdinand and Isabella had finally thrown the Moors out of Spain in 1492. But even at, in 1500s, in the early 1500s, the uh, Muslims were still outside the gates of Vienna uh, trying to invade Europe. So it was the financial resources of the New World that enabled Europe to finally throw off this invading force. And that left Europe rich and the Arabs poor. But what happened by the late 19th century in the use of oil is that the petrodollars have come along and now the Arabs are filthy rich and uh, they have the financial resources to go back on the war path and to try to take over the world. Violence is clearly mentioned numerous places in the Quran. For example, Surah 9.5 we read, But when the forbidden months are past, then fight and slay the pagans wherever ye find them. We're pagans. Wherever ye find them and seize them, beleaguer them, lie in wait for them in every stratagem of war. But if they repent and establish regular prayers and practice regular charity, see that's the five pillars of the faith, then open the way for them, for Allah is oft forgiving. Now, I have with me a copy of an interesting document that was signed on February 23, 1998. Five Islamic caliphates signed a document of declaration of war against the United States of America. This is called a fatwa in Islamic terminology. These five caliphates represented five radical factions and calling all of the Islamic world to unite against the most prominent enemy of Islam. See, they don't distinguish between Christian nation and a Christian. So this, um, uh, uh, the United States for them, everyone here is a Christian whether you believe in Christ or not because they have identified the United States as a Christian nation and therefore the enemy of Islam because Islam by definition should dominate the world and the very existence of a power as great as the United States is an insult and blasphemy to them. And the fact that Israel exists in the land is the greatest insult that the Islamic world has suffered since its inception. And so these are the two things that they're going after and why the real issue in this whole war is not the United States but Israel. Not only is it not Israel, it's the Temple Mount. And I'll read you the statement that was signed on February 23, 1998 by Sheikh Osama bin Mohammed bin Laden, Ayman al-Zawahiri, the leader of, the, of uh, Egyptian Jihad, Abu Yusir Rafi Ahmad Taha, leader of the Islamic group, another terrorist organization, Sheikh Mir Hamza, secretary of the Jamiut al-Iluma'i Pakistan, and Fazlul Rahman, leader of the Jihad movement in Pakistan. They began by saying, Praise be to Allah, who revealed the book, controls the clouds, defeats factionalism, and says in his book, quote, 
But when the forbidden months are past, this is the statement I just read to you from the Quran. They are relying upon the Quran and interpreting it literally. But when the forbidden months are past, then fight and slay the pagans wherever you find them. Seize them, beleaguer them, and lie in wait for them in every stratagem of war. And peace be upon our prophet Muhammad bin Abdullah who said, I have been sent with the sword between my hands to ensure that no one but Allah is worshipped. Allah who put my livelihood under the shadow of my spear and who inflicts humiliation and scorn on those who disobey my orders. And then they outline their various uh, problems with the United States and they all basically come down to the fact that, that we support the Jews and we're against uh, Saddam Hussein and Iraq. And then they conclude, All these crimes and sins committed by the Americans are a clear declaration of war on Allah, His Messenger, and Muslims. And ulema, that is, uh, Islamic scholars, have throughout Islamic history unanimously agreed that the jihad is an individual duty if the enemy destroys Muslim countries. And then he goes on to say, The ruling to kill the Americans and their allies, civilians and military, is an individual duty for every Muslim who can do it in any country in which it is possible to do it. And in, in order to liberate the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Holy Mosque from their grip, that's the Dome of the Rock on the Temple Mount in Israel. And so their ultimate rationale is to destroy the United States so that they can ultimately take back Israel and destroy the Temple Mount. So Israel is at the center of this war of terrorism. And the, from reading in the Quran, terrorism is not something that is secondary or something that has been artificially brought into Islam, but is at the very core of Islamic thought. Let me read a couple of other statements uh, from you that uh, support the concept of jihad. In uh, the Hadith 2.191, we're told, And slay them wherever you catch them, and turn them out from where they have turned you out, for tumult and oppression are worse than slaughter. So they clearly call uh, all Muslims to violence. In Volume 3, Book 46, Number 724 of the Hadith, it states, Muhammad said, A pious slave gets a double reward, and Abu Huraira added, By him in whose hands my soul is, but for jihad, hajj, and my duty to serve my mother. In other words, the hajj and jihad are the only ways to guarantee entrance into heaven. But you see the unbeliever... which they call the kafir, uh, non-believers, non-Islamic believers, are, are to be destroyed. Surah 385 states, If anyone desires a religion other than Islam, it will never be accepted of them. And then in Surah 489, Seize them and slay them wherever you find them. And in any case, take no friends or helpers from their ranks. And that's repeated again in Surah 550. So it is totally against Islam for a Muslim to have a friend or to enter, enter, enter into any contractual agreement or alliance with a non-Islamic country or person. And when they do that, it is merely the practice of deception in order to ultimately reverse it and take advantage of the individual. So we uh, have to be aware of this. While there are many, many Muslims that do not believe this because they're like many, many Christians, alleged Christians, 
who don't really believe the Bible or know the Bible, the Islamic fundamentalists who literally believe in the Quran believe all of these things. And so we dare not be deceived by the uh, ignorant people in our media and the ignorant t- uh, teachers in our schools and the ignorant um, uh, professors in our universities who wish to dupe us by convincing us that the, these uh, Muslims are actually peaceful. That is not their desire. And sir, on 929, we're told, fight those who believe not in Allah nor the last day, nor hold that forbidden, nor hold that forbidden which hath been forbidden by Allah and His Apostle, nor acknowledge the religion of truth, even if they are of the people of the book, until they pay the jizya, that's their tithe, with will, submission, and feel themselves subdued, so that we are to be fought. Go forth, light-armed and heavy-armed, and strive and struggle with your goods and your persons in the cause of Allah, according to Surah 9.41. The infidel is to be killed or crucified or have their hands and feet on alternate sides cut off or will be expelled out of the land and in the hereafter theirs will be an awful doom, according to Surah 5.33. Surah 2.190-192 states, Fight in the way of Allah against those who fight against you, but begin no hostilities. Now, they're not to kill innocents, but because every citizen in the United States pays taxes... This is uh, Bin Laden's rationale. Because every citizen in the U.S. pays taxes, and because the U.S. supports Israel, therefore we committed, by supporting Israel, the first act of aggression. And that's his twisted logic. See, what happens when you get into religion instead of Christianity, your soul becomes perverted until you can't believe the truth. That's why you have so many Arabs and so many Muslims, and not all Arabs are Muslims, uh, believing that this videotape they just found with a clear confession by uh, Osama bin Laden on it, they reject that as a fabrication. They turn reverse everything. In fact, most Arabs believe that it was the Mossad that staged the events of, of uh, September 11th, not uh, Osama bin Laden, simply because they can no longer tell the truth from error because their souls are so perverted and in such darkness from their religious system. So this is just to give you some idea of why uh, Islam is not a peaceful religion, why it is a religion that is not going to be too different from that of the Antichrist during the end times. Now, my personal thought is that one expectation, I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet, so I don't know, but I think it is very likely, I do, if we are, if, big, big if, if we are near the tribulation, if we're near the rapture, and if this is indeed the rapture generation, then after the rapture occurs, according to the scripture, a strong dictator called the Antichrist is going to rise and take power in Europe. And he is going to dominate the world. Now, he cannot do that if Islam is strong. So it's very possible that we could really win, see, see a, a victory in this war against Islam if we're in the rapture generation. If. Those are big ifs. But if that's true, then Islam has to be uh, rendered impotent before you can see the events of the tribulation take place. And something along that lines is going to have to happen in order for the ruler of Western Europe to authorize the rebuilding of the temple at the very beginning of uh, the seven-year tribulation period. 
But we have to be careful because there are too many people in this country who do not understand Christianity cannot operate on an objective basis of knowledge, and they want all religions to be the same. They want to reduce everything to the same ecumenical common denominator, and they don't understand that there are radical differences. In Islam, there is no sure way to heaven except through jihad and a self-imposed and a martyrdom in the midst of jihad. And how different can it be than with Christianity, where all men are recognized as sinners, but God loved all men. Scripture says, but God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There is no such verse, no such concept in all of the Quran or all of Islam that God would become man and live amongst us and then die as a substitute for our sins. We can know we're saved. The Muslim has no hint of salvation, no certainty of salvation. But in Christianity, we can know we're saved by simply putting our faith alone in Christ alone, and we can know with certainty that we have eternal salvation with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at this study and do a comparison of truth with error. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here who's unsure of their salvation and uncertain of their eternal destiny, that right now they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Scripture teaches that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And that is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for our sins. He was buried and rose again the third day. He conquered death, and his victory over death secured our victory over death. And there is nothing like that in any other world religion. Muhammad is in the grave. Buddha is in the grave. Confucius is in the grave. Joseph Smith is in the grave. But Jesus Christ is alive and well, resurrected, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, from which he will return in order to resurrect and take with him the church. Father, he is our King of kings and Lord of lords and Salvation is in Him. All that is necessary is to believe in Him, believe that He died on the cross for our sins, was buried and rose again the third day. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. And right now, right where you said, you can know that you have eternal life simply by accepting Christ as your Savior, believing on Him, trusting Him exclusively for your salvation. Father, we thank you for the things that we've studied today, the encouragement that they are, and the way we have a better understanding of our world and the reality around us. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.